0: I would like to talk to you today out of James, so please go to the second chapter of James, and I'd like to tie in everything that's been shared in this meeting already with a key thought that James offers us in chapter 2, verse 14. And this, I could have called this message many things, and Helen and I were having some some conversations around what I should perhaps call this. I, I could have called this... I've called this putting grace to work. Putting grace to work. I could have said faith in action. I could have said uh, the living out of grace in our lives. I could have chosen a number of of titles. But I settled on putting grace to work in the light of what um, James is going to say to us this morning. And uh, I loved what what, uh, the girls put up there, Isaiah 61 this really is the gospel, that it's good news for broken people. It's good news if you've broken in any way. It's good news for the lost. It's good news for the poor. This is the good news that Jesus brings and speaks into our lives, that there's life and liberty and forgiveness at the cross, and that's what we enjoy and celebrate. And I love also in the earlier, we didn't look at this verse specifically, but James says, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Isn't that beautiful? This is the heart of the gospel, that mercy, forgiveness, always triumphs over judgment. And so, uh, that brings me to this verse that I I want to read to you this morning. James 2.14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? And so this is... I think this is uh, one of the most rewarding portions of James. It's also historically been one of the most controversial lines in James because there's this connection where James in the same sentence uses faith and works. And I'm a believer in the gospel of Jesus which says, you don't have to do anything to earn salvation. It's a free gift. It's not, you do not earn it by doing anything. It's once saved, always saved. You are secure in your salvation. You do not have to work for your salvation at all. So why on earth does James put faith and works in the same sentence? And it's confused people for a long time. And it was this section of James, if you, if you re- have read anything of church history, Martin Luther, I'm so grateful for Jesus that he came to set us free. I'm so grateful for Paul, who, who just by a divine understanding and revelation, gifted by God with a magnificent brain, I thank God for magnificent brains, people that can think and people can write down clearly complicated things and make them simple. I thank God for people like that. I thank God for Paul, the great teacher of grace, the great theologian of grace who wrote it down for us in Galatians and Ephesians and Romans so we can understand exactly what grace is. I thank God for that. I thank God for other people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others that uh, followed them and unpacked it more so we can understand a little bit more. I thank God for that. But even Martin Luther, when he came to this section of James, because he was so committed to preaching that we are justified by faith alone, we are justified by grace alone, these verses offended him. Faith and works. And he couldn't reconcile it in his brain, and so he dismissed James and said, James is an epistle of straw. It's not worth anything, James. Well, even great minds cannot see things fully. And over centuries, God takes the revelation that one person has and another person comes and adds and enlarges and brings greater clarity and focus to the revelation that God has already brought. And um, that's a wonderful thing. That's why I want to encourage you to be readers. Okay? I want to encourage you to read. Read good books, read good theology, even if you find it difficult. Because actually, this is how we come to, together, we hear the mind of Christ. What we know today is built on, on centuries of people talking, thinking, and debating. And we are foolish if we think we are just going to understand everything perfectly, just like that. It's just not real. And so I want to encourage you to read theology, to read some books, and read some books that challenge your position, uh, perhaps because this is how we learn. And I, don't, I believe it's a great pity that uh, Luther responded like this, because I don't believe that James really says that at all. I believe James confirms the rest of the Scripture, that we are saved by grace alone, apart from works. It actually confirms that. And if you've been part of the church now for a while... I've tried to say a whole lot of stuff out of James chapter 1, which already should point you in that direction, that we, we can see this more and more fully. I, I think there's a lesson that we can learn here. If we are threatened by a particular verse, or if we are threatened by a particular book that um, challenges our position, I want to encourage you that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is it doesn't, Scripture does not contradict itself in any way. And even when we are offended by a particular portion or a particular thing, it reveals that there's still an insecurity in us that we have to overcome and we have still got lots to learn. And I say that to having been challenged by particular portions of Scripture. I find it sometimes difficult to preach expositionally in this sense, is that then I come across a portion that I, it really gets up my nose and I think, well, what is that? And I don't really agree with that. But I've got to preach it. And as I preach it, God brings revelation. And in the end, we find out that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. It all reinforces the truth of the words, All. It all builds upon itself. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so, all Scripture is God-breathed. And it doesn't contradict contradict itself. So, I I want to have a look at this verse. And I want to look at a a number of uh, phrases in particular. And I want to start with this first little phrase, what good is it? What good is it, says James, if you say you have faith, but you have no works? What good is it? So what does he mean by that? Well, I want to say the key to understanding this portion is the context. James has not changed his subject. What has he been talking uh, to us about in the first portion of chapter 2 is the poor, He's been talking about the poor. He's, he's been encouraging us. He's saying, don't discriminate against, against the poor in the, first, in the first chapter. Then he says, actually, this is the golden rule by which we should live our lives. All of the law is summarized upon this thing. Love. Lord your God with all the heart, with all the soul and all the strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything is summarized, all of the law is summarized by that. And he's given an example now of how he's putting that into practice. He's saying, this is an illustration of what I'm talking about, the golden rule. And that's precisely what Luther didn't see. The only reason why James introduces the sentence about faith and works is because he's convinced that we are saved by grace. He's absolutely convinced that we're saved by grace. Now he's just illustrating his, his point. Uh, he's, he's saying precisely because we are saved by grace, I want to encourage you, don't forget this thing. There's one thing I want to encourage you and Don't forget the poor. Don't forget, don't discriminate against them. Don't treat the rich differently from the way that you treat the poor. And this is what I want to encourage you to give yourself to, is caring for the poor. This is what James is saying. We don't get into heaven by good works. I believe James knew that. I believe the Christians that he was writing to knew that. The problem was, because they knew that, they had forgotten that they were also called to reach out to the poor. That's his point. It's so easy when we... we, And and this is sometimes the criticism of those that adopt uh, a Reformed theology, is that, that people say, well, because you're saved, you don't do anything. You're happy to be saved. And and that is a a criticism that we we need to look square in the face. We can't forget about good works. Not because we are saved by good works, but because of other people. We can't forget that God so loved the world. And the great theologian of grace, Paul, he says this, in fact, in Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to Paul's language. He's writing to Titus and he says, This is... A trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things. That's strong language from Paul. I want Titus, I want you to insist on these things to those that believe in God. In other words, to save people to the church, those that believe in God, they must be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul, the great theologian of grace, saying, you must remind every believer that they must devote themselves to good works. They must give themselves for other people. Why? He explains it in, this, in the second half. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Not for the one who's already saved, but for the one who's receiving the good work. It's profitable for them. You, it's not about you earning your salvation. It's about you helping other people. It's about you help, reaching out to the lost and the broken and those that don't have food. and those that, That's what the point is. You are saved, yes, but now, for the good of others, give yourself. Amen? Okay, so Paul says in Romans 6, he says it again. He says, you, So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ... Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, your body, to God as an instrument for righteousness. He's saying the same thing. He's saying, You've been saved, now give your body to, to good works. Don't don't just serve worldly passions. Give yourself, now that you said, give yourself to righteousness. Give yourself to reaching out to others. This is appropriate for a believer. And that's it for me. I want to say this is exactly what James is saying in this portion of Scripture. He's putting forward the same argument in a positive way. He's saying this is the responsibility of every Christian. This is the responsibility of those all of us that are called as believers. He's saying, what advantage is it to you? What profit is it to you if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? He's convinced, James is convinced, and I am convinced, that Christianity is a very practical faith. It is practical. It is down to earth. People don't get saved because we have good theology. I hope we will increasingly have good theology as a church. But they don't get saved because we have got good theology. They get saved because they've been touched by something that we have done. We have preached the gospel. We have reached out to the poor. We have visited someone in hospital, not because we're trying to get ourselves saved, but just because it's good for them, and because we love them, we're reaching out to them. And the building blocks did this amazing thing for cancer... um, a fundraising event for cancer on, on, on uh, Friday. And they had a dozen mums that visited and they raised money for children suffering from cancer. It's a brilliant thing. It's practically saying, this faith, this grace that I've received, I'm putting it into action in my life. I'm activating it. I'm reaching out because of the grace that I've received. I want to give it away. And so it's practical. James is convinced it's practical. I'm convinced Christianity is practical. And so he's saying, if you've confessed Jesus, if you've been baptized, if you've done all the Christian stuff, if you say you have faith, but you despise the poor, and you don't treat people with uh, dignity and honor, what advantage is that faith to you? He's basically saying it's of no advantage to you. You might be saved, but it's not doing anyone any good. You're going to get to heaven, but you're just going to get to heaven. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? I don't want to just get to get to heaven and, and uh, you know, the Bible does teach this as well, that there are rewards for us in heaven. And I want to enjoy some reward in heaven. <laughs> the, the Bible says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. So there's a challenge that God lays. How we live our lives actually does matter. It matters now in how we serve people and love people. And it also matters one day because, you know, in heaven you can enjoy some reward. Yes. That's what the Bible teaches, and sometimes we're not comfortable with it. But it does teach that. And I want to enjoy some reward in heaven. And not in a selfish way, but I, I prefer to be sitting at a nice table than just a small table. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm teasing a little bit, but you hear what I'm saying, okay? And there is a reality that all of us have to face as believers that people do look at us. People do look at Christians. And they do make a judgment. "Ah, We have to just be comfortable with that. Uh, They are going to see how we react. When we are under pressure, they're going to say, well, you say you've got Jesus? Okay, well, how do you react under pressure? And let me take a look. And, uh, and so there is this thing that people do look at us, and we have to be comfortable with that. I don't think that it's um, necessarily an unhealthy thing. You know, Voltaire, I've quoted Voltaire before. He was a famous French atheist. And uh, he, he, he was constantly picking on the church and, and, and pointing out the hypocrisy of the church. He was saying, Oh, those Christians, they're all hypocritical. They're all hypocritical, all hypocrites. They don't believe the Bible. So he was challenged one day. Someone asked him, And said, Did you ever see anybody or meet anybody that you think was really like a Christian according to the Bible? And so the great atheist Voltaire, he did think for a moment, and after a moment he responded and he said, Yes. I once met a man called John Fletcher. Now, if you know church history, John Fletcher was an early Methodist that worked with John and Charles Wesley. And I read the story of, 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 John, of uh, John Fletcher. Um, one day he was preaching, and this man walked miles to go in here and hear him preach. And he was passing a farm, and he said, Do you know where John, John Fletcher is preaching? And the man said to him, Yes, he's preaching up there. Go up there and you'll find him. So he went, and he heard John Fletcher preach. And as he was returning, the farmer said, Well, did you find John Fletcher? Did you see him? Did you see John Fletcher? And uh, the man replied to the farmer, No, I didn't but I did see Jesus and I saw him crucified. Beautiful. People see Christ in us or they don't. And we've got to be comfortable to live with that tension. People do look at us and say, okay, what do you believe? Let me see it in your life. And I think for me, frustration is when the gospel is preached and you don't see fruit for perhaps many years but then I have to just come back to the parable that Jesus said. He said, you sow the seed, and some of it falls on good ground. Some falls on stony ground. Some takes root quite quickly, and then when troubles come, plant shrivels and disappears. And I have to, as a preacher of the gospel, I have to be comfortable with that, that some will be, fruit will come in some people's lives, but perhaps not everyone's life. I believe what James is saying is this. That our lives need to so shine, that we have to be so salty, so full of light, that unbelievers are left speechless. They can't argue back. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? That was the why I talk, brought that illustration of Voltaire. It's all very well to have your thinking and all your stuff in a row, but actually people can't argue with a changed life. John Fletcher was a testament because of Jesus shining out of his life. And I believe there's nothing more sad than Christians claiming faith but having no works flowing out of their lives. No love for the church. No priority for the church. No desire to give. No desire to pray. Nothing. And yet we sit there and say we're saved. What profit is that to anybody else? You hear what I'm trying to say? So please, don't, don't, I'm not trying to put anything on you, all right? I'm just saying, this is the reality. We have to say, God, use us. What convinces people? Good theology? No, it convinces people is our works. Things that we re- do as we reach out to them. So, then I come to this phrase. What the second little phrase i like to look at? Can that faith save him? Now, see, this is where Luther got into a muddle, and this is where... What I want to say to you this morning, really, is a revelation that God gave R.T. Kendall, and it's 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 amazing because R.T. has broken open a whole thing, which which out of the book of James, which makes James consistent with the book of Romans and Galatians, and and so I'm thankful for people like R.T. I'm thankful for Michael, who's going to come next week, who actually. What Artie discovered, Michael explained from the Greek and the Hebrew, and it's consistent with the original language. And that's sometimes where English is so unhelpful to us. It doesn't really get the detail. Basically, there have been a number of interpretations of this verse. Many people after Luther said this verse meant that if we don't have works, we're not saved. Yeah, so if you're not, and I don't believe, that's what what James is saying, because James is not up to this point, he's not questioned salvation at all. He could have said, will that person themselves be saved? He doesn't say that. He just uses this phrase, can faith save him? And the key here is him. Who's the him that James is referring to? Who's the him? Now, the English language, we have one word for him, All right. So when I say him, it's another person. But in the Greek, there's two tenses. There's the accusative tense, and there's the reflexive tense. And the reflexive tense means you can use the word him, but you're actually referring to someone else. You're not referring to yourself. Now, we don't have that detail in the English language. When we say him, it's simply someone else. But in the Greek, you can be talking about yourself when you use him, and you can also be talking about someone else when you use him. Uh, is, Is that clear? So what James is saying here is that, and this is what R.T. understood, that the Greek here is not accusative, it's reflexive. It's talking about someone else. The him is not talking about the person themselves, it's talking about someone else. And R.T. made this connection that because James has not changed the subject of his sentence, he's still talking about the poor man from verse 6. What he is saying is, what can that faith save him? It's the poor man of verse 6. He's saying, if we don't have works in our lives, can anyone else benefit from that? Can the poor man benefit if we don't have works? That's what he's saying. It's not talking about personal salvation. It's talking about salvation for the poor man. And then, if we understand that, the whole of the book suddenly makes sense. It doesn't pull against itself. So the Greek makes that very clear, and I've tried to explain it. It's quite technical in terms of its language. But if you'd like me to point you to the verses that are in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I can do that. But I didn't feel that it was appropriate to do it on a Sunday, because it is quite technical. So, we can understand this verse... In the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a logical progression that James has unpacked. In the first seven verses of chapter 2, he rebukes the Christians because they are not treating the poor well. In verse 8 to 13, he encourages them. He says, I want you to keep the royal law. The royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. Show mercy, show justice. And that mercy always triumphs over justice. And now what he says, he argues that good works, he's saying good works are necessary towards other people, towards the poor and needy, so that they can be saved. That's what he's saying. And at the same time, it does show that you have faith because you are acting upon that faith. So I conclude with this, that as believers, all of us are, are, are called to be instruments of salvation. You and I are called as priests to be instruments of salvation. What, what James is showing is the seriousness of not living up to what we claim we have faith for. You know what I'm saying? So he, he makes that clear in the second verse. He says, what good is it to say that you have faith when a brother or a sister, a brother or a sister is in need of food and clothing. And here, again, the topic of the sen- sentence is the other person. It's the brother and the sister. He says, what good is it to them? Not for you, not to earn your salvation, but to them. If you don't clothe them, if you don't feed them, what good is it? If you say you have faith, but you're not, act, you're not acting on your faith. You're not actually putting it into action. And Corbus used this uh, the, other, the other day, Psalm 37. I've been young and now I'm old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You know, the important thing for me out of that, out of that scripture is that it might be a temporary thing. We might have to, in, in, sometimes in our lives we're going to have more, sometimes we're going to have less. But the important thing is when there is poverty, that Christians are there ministering to those that need Now, that for me is the important thing. That's what uh, I believe James is driving at. That's why he says, if I say go and I wish you well, but I do nothing, we are contradicting what he's already said in chapter 1, verse 27. Remember James said this? He said, this is pure religion. What is pure religion? To take care of the widow and the orphan and keep yourself unstained from the world. That is pure religion. So he's he's saying, if we don't do this, we're contradicting what I've already said. And now there's a consistency, there's a logic. Pure religion is never letting another person suffer if you can help it. It's not good enough to say, God bless you, unless you and I are prepared to be the one who is the answer to that prayer. Perhaps God wants to use me and you to bless that person. Yes? Or are we expecting that a truck is going to come, you know, a truck is going to swing by their house and just food is going to fall off the truck and they're going to be miraculously miraculously provided for? No? Perhaps it is you and I taking some of our groceries and saying, God bless you, I'm going to be an instrument of blessing by giving you these groceries. You hear what I'm saying? It's very, very practical. And you know, James also, he's, um, I love the way he makes it uncomfortable for us. He makes it impossible for us to be spiritual about it. (laughs) Because he doesn't say, pray about it. He says, actually, give them things that are helpful in prayer. Uh, No, no. He says, give them things that are helpful for the body. He makes it practical. He says, you have to take care of people's physical needs. It's not just about praying for them. It's not about prophesying over them. As good as those things are, He's saying, actually, physically, take care of what they need. And you know, there's a whole bunch of people in the world that only know material things. They only know physical things. They only know natural things. They don't know anything spiritual. And so, I was challenged by William Booth. Remember, William Booth... uh, he, he started the Salvation Army, he had this phrase, there's no use talking to a man about his soul while he has an empty stomach. He's making a profound point. It's no use preaching at people that they need to be saved when they are starving. We've got to do both. <laughs> We've got to meet some physical needs. The meeting of it doesn't save us doing that. We're already saved. But because of the love that we have, the grace that we've received, we give ourselves away. And Paul said a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I've become weak, so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Yeah? And this is what I felt God say to me this week. Paul didn't say that he would save all. He didn't even say that he would save many. He said, through my life I might save some. So we do what we can do. We live our lives. And there might be many that are saved, there might be few that are saved. The point is that through our lives, some are saved over the course of our lifetime, that we could point some people to Christ. And this is the other thing I wanted to say. James doesn't say, uh, in these practical verses, he doesn't say, loan them things that are helpful for their bodies. (laughs) He says, give them what is helpful for their bodies. It's not a loan agreement. It's not like we we are not going to make anything out of this deal. You know, someone once said to me, I don't give to the church because I don't get anything back from the church. Like, this is an investment. Like, you give me something, and I'll give my money to the church in return for the something that you give. This is not biblical giving. <laughs> we, we give because we give to God, and we give for His kingdom. We don't get anything back, except perhaps in heaven we might get something back, and we just give because we give out of love. Are you with me? I hope so. And this really set me free. I also felt God saying this to me this week. You know, I always go through the cycle of kind of like guilt. Because I walk down, say, in London, and there's a guy who's a down-and-out guy, and he's looking absolutely at the end of himself. He's thin, he's shriveled, he's actually, he's, and he's, crying, he's saying, please give me something. And yet I can see he's an alcoholic or he's a drug addict. And so I go through this thing in my mind all the time. If I give him money, he's going to go and he's going to get some more drinkers. But you know, James, he gives us a wonderful, wonderful thing. He says, give what is good and helpful for the body. What is good and helpful for that man's body? Food, shelter, clothing, a place to stay. If I give him money, it's not going to be good for his body. Because he's going to go and get some drugs or alcohol or whatever and make his problem worse. And I found that incredibly liberating. That I don't have to be someone who's motivated by guilt. I want to be motivated by compassion. But I need to give in a way that is good for people. Not a way that's going to perpetuate the problem. Are you with me? I hope that helps you. Because um, we can't help people without feeling guilty. So my point is simple this morning. Faith is the starting point of salvation, but if there are no works, if we don't add works to our saving faith, it will be frustrated faith at best, and at worst, our faith is entirely useless for anybody else. (laughs) So it needs to be faith with works flowing out of our love relationship with God. You know, we're going to try and avoid responsibility by praying about it. And sometimes prayer is the greatest way of passing the buck in the world. You ask someone to do something, now I'll pray about it. Well, I want to say, (laughs) there are some things we don't need to pray about. Okay? (laughs) There are some things you do not need to pray about. You do not need to pray about loving God. (laughs) You don't need to pray about loving your neighbor. Okay? You don't need to pray about loving the church. You don't need to pray about living sacrificially. You don't have to pray about being generous. You don't have to pray about those things. Those things are just part of the Christian life. That's what we do, because God requires it of us. Okay? We're saved by grace. We're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law, the perfect law of freedom. We're under the law of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would say to you this morning that you are okay, that you have His grace, but put that grace that you've received, put it to work. Activate that grace in your life. Put faith to work in your life. And as we do that, the world should be challenged and hopefully we are going to see some people saved. Maybe not all people, maybe not many people, but we are going to see some saved. And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for this church as we go forward this year. That as we faithfully preach the gospel, we are going to see some saved. Amen?